the thing for me is I wanted to almost say how hard it was. I remember Kevin J. O'Connor, who founded DoubleClick, I got to meet with him in my mid-20s, and I read his book, and he always joked, like, it didn't sell a ton of copies because he talked about how hard it was to, like, fund the company in his parents' basement, run up money on credit cards, and almost go out of business tons of time and regulation, and it's incredible. And then he always jokes, I, I don't know, some ungodly figure he sold for, it's hundreds of millions, and the day after, Google flipped it to, somebody flipped it to a private equity for 1.2 billion, and he just jokes, I lost 500 million on that deal, right? Hi, friends, welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. Now, that was Justin Michael. He's the founder of The Sales Borgs, a new community for sales and RevOps. And he's joining me on this episode to talk about sales in the future. Now, I always like to caveat these conversations with a quote from Nobel Prize winning physicist Nils Bohr, who said, quote, prediction is very difficult, especially if it's about the future, unquote. But, you know, the prospect of being wrong has never stopped me before, so why start now? So Justin has a particular point of view about what the future will hold for sales, and we're going to explore that. For instance, you know we've got various measures of potential, IQ for intelligence, EQ for emotional intelligence, RQ for relational intelligence. Well, Justin and I are going to talk about whether sellers will need TQ, technical intelligence, in order to fully compete in a few automated future. And there's also a path from here to the future that Justin and I are going to dig into. Talk about some more of the pressing contemporary issues facing sales and talk about some possible solutions for those. So all this and much, much more. But before we get to Justin, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it. And if you subscribe, we'd certainly appreciate it if you could give us your feedback about how we're doing in the form of a review. So thank you for that. All right, let's jump into it. Justin, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, Andy. I've been a longtime fan of your books and podcasts and also a big Ring DNA fan. Oh, well, <laughs> thank you plug. very much. Yeah, well, why not? Let's let's shout out. Shameless plug is great uh, for both of us, as a matter of fact. So, um, so where have you been hiding out? Yeah, so great question. Um, I have been carrying the bag. I have been an operator in software as a service companies for the last 13 years and doing my best to advance. Um, and to do that, you kind of go from inside sales to an account executive. Mm -hmm. Over time, they give you a team. Sometimes when you're leading AEs, they'll give you SDRs. Sometimes you're running all SDRs, then you get a region. And then what you learn is the more and more you take on, that's just actually you're playing all the positions. <laughs> Which <laughs> is you, good training. Yeah, and you, and you want to be a player coach. But if you're good at prospecting, you're kind of always going to be on the phone. So that was my story. Like No matter what team I would lead, I would always kind of still make the cold calls and enjoy that and try to stay close to the front lines. Yeah. Well, a question for you is, uh, so what's, what's the biggest lesson you've learned about yourself during quarantine? Oh, wow. Um, I am like very sedentary. I can sit in one place all day. <laughs> I have the opposite of ADD. I can just get lost in a, something I'm doing at like 6 PM and it's one in the morning. And, uh, it reminds me of, when I used to study things in school and just get carried away on a report or something. So, uh, yeah, I have to really make sure that I get out in the sun. I live in beautiful, uh, Southern California, but you know, I work on different time zones. So I'm often like kind of strapped into the matrix. <laughs> yeah. You're speaking like a true science fiction fan. Yeah. You need the Apple watch that 
mine annoyingly tells me every hour it's time to stand up. <laughs> That's smart. Yeah. <laughs> um, luckily, I have a shepherd husky so and uh, some chickens, so that keeps it all interesting. Uh, chickens, interesting. So fresh eggs. Yeah, it's it's soon. They're just they're still kind of coming online. I think a couple okay. months here we raised them since chicks. Very interesting. Yeah, I don't, if yeah, the neighbors don't mind. I mean, if they don't mind the the clucking, then uh, or you can bribe them with eggs. I think is the strategy most people employ. Yeah, then you're lucky. You get actually, you know, fresh eggs as opposed to factory eggs. Yeah, so that's just a fun part. And uh, trying to eat fresh, trying to get stuff delivered, it's kind of crazy when it takes weeks uh, to come in. I haven't been reading a lot, but I've written the most I've ever written in my whole life. So I, you know, I wrote a book, and I've been doing podcasts and blogs and all sorts of multimedia and it's a lot easier and harder to do this stuff. That's why I do respect the caliber and quality of, of your blog, uh, even getting on here and making sure we had our great mics on. So that's cool. All right. So we're going to talk about the future of sales. And I always like to start these conversations with a caveat, which is one of my favorite quotes from Nils Bohr, who was a Nobel Prize winning physicist from Denmark and had participated in the Manhattan Project and so on, development of the atomic bomb. And his quote is that prediction is very difficult especially if it's about the future. So um, we're going to talk about some things, and yeah, we'll invariably be wrong, but it's going to be an interesting discussion nonetheless. So as you said, you've been writing a book, and yeah, it's taking something from what you had read, you said that, um, that reps going into the future are going to develop TQ as a distinct from EQ and IQ. So tell us what that means. Yes. Yeah, so there's this term technology quotient, and I'm mm -hmm. not really sure why it resonated so much with me or where I found it. I've seen it in psychology today. I think Gardner and Forrester have a concept of this. It's in Deloitte, maybe some different consultancies, maybe something Tony J. Hughes talked about. But essentially, we can become more empathetic and develop our EQ. We can develop our IQ because we can do lumosity or read a lot or be creative, and our neuroplasticity can literally change. Well, we're in a world of systems. Our cars have seven onboard computers. We, everything we touch is actually tech. And human and machine can fuse. There's actually a quotient for how facile, for how seamless and superhuman the platforms come together. And so it's really important. It's the singularity in time. And my first predictions were really about 50 years from now, like Blade Runners type stuff. But I, what I started doing in the field as a rep is I just started buying as much tech as I could. And then I was part of a company called Outbound Works where we raised um, you know, a, a few million dollars. Uh, we had some good angel investors and we started to try to build this stuff, like fully automated messaging and personalization at scale. And a lot of these are funny concepts because they sound like, you know, something funny like jumbo shrimp or some kind of oxymoron. Like well, yeah, personalization I, I, scale. I, I, wrote, <laughs> I wrote about that actually. Maybe you read that two weeks ago. That's just what I said. Oh, enough, really? with, enough with this, you know. We can automate personalization at scale. I read in somebody's ABM brochure, and it's like, okay, come on. Enough, 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 enough. Yeah, because true personalization is really a one-to-one -one experience. Yes. So this thing could write sentences, and it could do various levels of personalization that sort of – it does pass the Turing test because you're not sure if it came from a human or a machine or an enhancement. Yeah, I mean, there is that. But, I mean, yeah, I got a message this week from somebody who said, you know, on LinkedIn, Andy, just a personal message. Wanna, yeah, they're promoting a – summit they were doing. <laughs> it's like, well, of course, this isn't personal. First of all, use the word. This is a personal message. That was the, the clue right there that uh, it wasn't a personal message. But yeah, yeah, I mean, I, th I, I don't want to get sidetracked on that, but I just think that, that, you know, one of the 
holes we're digging for ourselves is is maybe worrying too much about you know, personalization and a true personalization. Is even to pass as a Turing test because yeah, people that receive the emails they they know what's going on. Yeah, so our prospects are smarter than we think, and when they get that same you know, hey John or hey Sally, these are times of crisis. You know, hope you're doing well. There's just so many generic, vague emails. And I think some of the new technologies that I've been looking at, they pull information, they source more quickly. So it's an efficiency mm-hmm. play. Like Cheetah IQ, it goes into the annual report and pulls out some nuggets that you could use as snippets in the email more quickly. You know, that's going to be kind of the future is on the efficiency level. It's all about applying the AI and ML to the right piece of the problem. Yeah, and there is that sort of contextual dynamic insertion of content going on right now in outbound emails, right? Uh, which you know can provide some of that that feeling of personalization, but I mean, part of it's hard to get back to my first question is is, is so you you wrote that you know, you said you can imagine the not too distant future when the I love this term you use the SDRAE industrial complex crumbles. So what does that mean? So the way I look at it is applying an assembly line to sales and having a distinct opener and closer on a supply chain is just a function of looking at what a human being does to open a sale. There's a funnel that naturally develops in marketing and sales. Aaron Ross in 2011, to describe things he did to scale Salesforce as part of the team that went from zero to 100 million, created a book called Predictable Revenue. And in many ways, it's the Henry Ford model for scaling startups, and it's been widely accepted. You raise some VC, you get some SDRs, some AEs, some sales development reps, some account executives, and you go to market. Now, this really described a motion that was popularized in the aughts, like 2007 on. Now, there's been a Cambrian explosion of vendors. There's 500 going to Mm 5,000 on the David Dulaney V6 map. There's going to be 5 billion in VC, according to Aragon Research, that's poured into the tools. And you have this environment, sales tools. tools. Nobody wants to go public and air the dirty laundry. So the secondary market's crazy. Like in 2019, 40% of the rounds were $100 million. And if you raise $100 million and you got to sell and you got to get to 20 to 40% year, year over year growth, you have to hire SDRs. And so now we have this industrial complex where we're taking inexperienced people who have not had traditional sales training. And now instead of 600,000 in North America, we need 2 million just to fill these roles. And so my book is about a Tony Stark era. 70% of what a top funnel opening sales rep can do can be automated at the state of today's technology. So much like the first industrial revolution in Upton Sinclair, I always joke, right? That was the factories and meatpacking and it was uh, was, problematic. Yeah, that was, I think, was really the second industrial revolution, but yeah. You're, you're spot on. So these days, you have an SDR who's in an air-conditioned place who has to make that existential choice between a Coke Zero or a Diet Coke, right? So it's, we're not really struggling in that regard, but I think there's something humane about giving back a rep the 70% of their time that can be spent on admin and managerial tasks. And that is a return to innocence. That's making them be human to human and sell again. So there's connect and sell, right? Like there's these parallel technologies. A ring DNA is actually an awesome technology where you have uh, dialers and you have ways to speed up the connection rates. So there's just more conversations and better quality conversations per day. That's really the future is a convergence of all this tech to take the admin loads off the rep that's choking them out. And that's where it's like Tony Stark in a Jarvis Iron Man suit. Maybe I should say Iron Person to, mm. to make this uh, really modern. Well, so. A question though about that is 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 would anybody care if the SDR role, top of the funnel role, would, would you know in a few years would anybody care if that was completely automated? 
other than people that might lose their jobs. But I mean, would would the buyers care? You know, I think the email interaction back and forth, it was very relevant and you can get the utility out of the back and forth. If there's enough machine learning and AI that you have a very inventive, creative wiki where the answers are perfect, there's a certain amount of selling, I think, even farther than transactional selling, where the neuro-linguistic programming, right, the natural language processing, the ability for machines to train themselves, to listen. A machine could be listening to thousands of answers concurrently and building a a neural net as to how to answer that question. And then the future could answer in a human-like way. So people have relegated AI like, yeah, it's just going to be chatbots and it's going to do low-level transactions. It's going to get to the level where it can be strategic. And you're hearing that probably on the show here first because I've never heard it said anywhere in the world. Uh, <laughs> that me- the Kai-Fu Lee is this uh, AI prognosticator out of China and I love his stuff. Mm-hmm. What the AIs won't be able to do, I mean, one brain right now is equal to all human compute is they won't be able to love and emote and create and scope and problem solve. Right. And there are, there are questions that you could ask that AI interactor that are going to be far complex and will always break it, but not forever. Yeah, and I'm you know I'm not worried about that time frame personally because <laughs> that's going to yeah. be beyond the scope of my lifetime and probably okay. yours as well. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so yeah, I'm not concerned about that. So I mean, I think that. I think we have a, a different issue, right? And this is, is triggered, thoughts are triggered by what you, you had written and uh, some of what I read is that, yeah, we've got, we've certainly for SaaS businesses, subscription based businesses, we're into this predictable revenue model. We've got these specialized sales roles. And to a large degree, I think that, you know, the top of the funnel activities that we assign to SDRs and BDRs, it's questionable whether it's really selling or not. Or is it marketing, right? And that discussion is going on in lots of companies. You know, where does this appropriately belong, right? Because it's a fundamentally a lead generation role. Um, and so I think, to me, the equation that needs to be looked at is for SDRs to continue in human form is, is they need to be able to add value to the buyer, right? Because if we make an assumption that, that if we can automate some of this stuff, that that function can be a lower cost function, is you know, buyers tend to gravitate to lower cost channels if, in the absence of of uh, added value, you know. So if you have players, they think, oh, all the vendors are somewhat alike, and they are going to look fairly similar. I think if they're driven by by automation, is you know, if there's no added value, they'll go to the lowest cost channel. So the question really becomes, is you know, what's the value SDRs can add to buyers to stay in place? I might shock you first and say nostalgia, but that's like a time machine 50 years, right? Like you can get a, a wax record, like a record player mm-hmm. <laughs> and you can play on. In the future, you'll have a more premium op- option where you insert the human. You want a human yeah. seller? Oh, that's so nostalgic. That reminds <laughs> me. Right. The other thing that's going to go away. So this well, but the- <laughs> I, don't, I don't think that is nostalgic though, by the way. But anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that. Well, anyway. I, I think that's way future. For now, the value is that the way that a human can empathize, emote, and synthesize and create context and storytelling and sort of a hive mind right now, that synergistic rapport level is just not something a computer can do. There's the famous one where Will Smith is is talking to that female robot and she's like, like she's totally on and then very awkward and then very on. And so it's like, it's going to be more like that. (laughs) Well, but the question is really about, and this is a part I think that that is a big, big concern to me is, 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 yeah, you know, we need to separate in the way we perceive things. Is is yeah, certainly from 
the actual selling takes place once an AE gets involved. That's what I believe, right? So if you look at and listen to interactions of, of SDRs making outbound phone calls, which I do, is, yeah, I would say that, yeah, these things we talk about that are so important in sales in terms of making that connection and empathy and so on, when you're just trying to sell a demo or a meeting, quite honestly, I don't see a lot of it. Yeah. And that's absolutely necessary when the AEs get going and involved because this is you know, a more complex engagement at that point. But that front end, you know, this is why I think it's vulnerable to automation. And that's why I asked the question before, but what's the value that we can have SDRs provide? Because you know, if you're fundamentally doing appointment setting, you know, there's not there's not a big opportunity to do to, to get into the emotion and the empathy and the creativity and the problem solving, which AEs absolutely need. Yes, so this is why I call it the the AE SDR industrial complex because Justin Roth Marsh wrote a book called The Machine. He's been on my show several times. I love Justin. Yeah, he, he's awesome. And so um, we're not playing Moneyball when we're using hammers and nails. And there's SDRs and AEs and CSMs. We need new acronyms, snowflake-like structures um, to teams like you study crystals. Like there's um, just a ton of different linkages and ways to run it, even from the 50-50 splits and OTE and forecast models and all the software has to change. And it's a bit like when you study the uh, planets going around the sun in like a fixed system, but then you realize like the time continuum is warped and everything is moving to the side and the planets are moving in spirals, almost like they're going through viscous liquid. Like the real structure of this stuff is, it's way more complicated in open ears and closers. I think that's one of the mistakes which creates an industrial complex. Right. Um, we just we need to blow it up. Right. I, I do think that because I think someone that has a, a skill, like we want to move SDRs from Excel to SQL. Let's say someone's awesome at targeting, so good at that. And so they learn data science and they learn SQL and R and Python and Node.js and mm-hmm. they learn these systems like Tableau. Mm-hmm. And then someone else is just awesome at social media. We'll put them in LinkedIn all day, creating content, interacting and being empathetic in the comments. Right. So you could have like flavors of SDRs. And I I talked with Aaron Ross about this and liked it. So I want to attribute it like, you know, Skittles of XDRs. It's like, think of any specific piece of of subspecialization and that becomes an SDR. (laughs) Well, yeah, I don't disagree. I mean, that's, but the thing is that the way it's currently structured is that, yeah, this is a short-term job. You know, you're just in here for 12 to 18 months and then it's either up or out, right? As opposed to, look, because yeah, I, I had actually I had this conversation with Aaron. It's like, yeah, okay, why aren't we hiring SDRs who have ten to fifteen years of experience? That's what they want to do. They're good at it. You know, this special thing they could be targeting or whatever. And why don't we encourage the development of that role into that degree of specialization so that it actually can come up, become a career for people? Just as somebody wants to be a career salesperson. Yeah. So yeah, it's really interesting because. In an enterprise company, you have a person with a couple years experience setting the meeting to try to pique your interest. They might bant you like budget, authority, need time, and blah, then do it again. As, as I said, blah, blah, blah. That's not yeah. qualification. That's qualification for the meeting, but it's not qualification for the business case for the customer. And it might happen twice, and then that's a really poor experience. So to, to highlight this, if you think like Le Cirque in New York, a beautiful restaurant, you might have the maitre d' might be the owner who's been there 25 years, knows how all the menus were put together, the seating arrangements, right down to the fabric on the tablecloth. The most experienced person is going to greet the customer who's going to go in and have a right. you know thousand dollar dinner, and I think that's why full cycle sellers have become back into vogue. Is the the full cycle AE who has a Jarvis around him or Acumen training for SDRs so they can really understand business case. 
but I would just be a proponent of let's custom fit selling models and sales motions to the product market fit and the customer's buying process. And shocking. Let's, and let's do away just with shocking. Uh, and and Aaron himself has evolved What's, from that model because I think if you moved the Aaron Ross model of predictable revenue, you've shifted into well, the first gear, and that's let's important. Be, let's be let's be fair. Aaron Ross and Mary Lou Tyler. Yes, and Mary Lou is a friend, and I love predictable prospecting. <laughs> okay. okay, but they they co-wrote that book. Just uh, you know, just make sure everybody gets their due. Yes, I I love Mary Lou, and I I felt like her her book even brings like a process focus over the top of it. So I definitely suggest people read both. Um, and I think their models actually are totally relevant. I think we're just going to see subspecialization, and we're going to see converged systems, because I think CFOs are going to say. I don't want to pay for a dialer, a data source, CRM, sales navigator, sales mm-hmm. engagement platform, sure. conversational intelligence. It's $1,000 per rep per month per Lars Nielsen for high growth companies is only about 15%. Someone's going to pound their fist down and say, doesn't some company make all of this in a bundle? <laughs> well, that's consolidation is inevitably going to take place when you've the market's expanding, as you talked about with the number of vendors. So yeah, yeah I think everybody's... Uh, rapidly positioning themselves for that inevitability the vendors are rapidly positioning themselves yes for uh, sure unfortunately unfortunately salesforce can't buy all of them so yeah they're um, gonna try <laughs> <laughs> well they're gonna be pitched every one of them but they're not gonna buy everyone yeah i love so, it i love it so you you had written something for Tenbon article about top 10 sdr stack tech stacks that i don't know it's a longer title but but it was interesting as i read the article yeah my takeaway was one, oh man, we suck so bad at sales. Two, because we suck so bad at actually the selling part of the motion is that we really have to rock the top of the funnel because we have to feed the inefficient and ineffective sellers at the bottom of the funnel. That's sort of my takeaway from your article. And I don't disagree, by the way. I think, <laughs> I think that's one of the, the problems. I mean, people don't universally see it. Uh, to your point about, you know, we're seeing increase back in full cycle reps and so on is that yeah, we have a business that, and most subscription businesses that, um, you know, operate like a twenty percent win rate on the most qualified opportunities, and so you're 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 churning through all these prospects, and you're basically playing the odds as opposed to selling. That's a really good point. I like that whole angle as well. I have found like it's kind of like with vampires; like they have to be invited in 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 the movies and the lore of vampires. The problem now wait, is because wait, they, have to be, they have to be invited in. I guess in, in a lot of the vampire movies, like they'll be on the balcony, and until the person invites them over the threshold, there's some like law of vampires that they can't come in. Oh wow! Okay, I got to so, yeah, check so, that out. Yeah, yeah. So I've equated that to salespeople. Here's what I mean: is that the average CXO, like the CEO, is getting 250 emails a day, and it's getting more and more personalized. And there's a lot of garbage in there too, but pretty much because buyers have researched so far. A lot of times, opening is the new closing. I've seen also teams where there's very competent sellers, but the company just can't get enough meetings and demos booked to build enough funnel rapidly. And I know like Mike Weinberg's talked about it, but for every company where the issue is just closing skills, there's usually this bigger issue that not enough people are prospecting enough, right? They're leaning on these tech stacks and thinking it's, it, it's marketing in a way or inbound marketing instead of doing the harder prospecting motions that have higher form of leverage. And this is where I talk about the Tiger Woods analogy, which is if I have a $3,000 Big Bertha driver and he has a club from the 70s, 
he is going to smoke me on that golf course. I'm going to slice into the, the side. I'm going to hit the sand trap because I'm not a golfer. So I can keep upgrading my tech stacks, but I don't have the deeper form. What you're calling to is better training so that when you actually do get the live fire, which is the purpose of this tech, is to free up the rep, that they now they need classic and traditional evergreen training <laughs> on reframing and communicating and persuading and empathizing and active listening and storytelling and it goes forever. So what's funny is all these new methods and books just unlock you know more reasons that you have to go uh, read more Andy Paul and, uh, and you're <laughs> right up on all the modern stuff too. I'm not I'm not antiquating your work. I'm saying it's classic because it's not about tech for tech's sake. Well, and I think this is one of the things problems we're getting into in sales is is and you see this so much in the writing is that. And Justin and I talked about this, and I agree with him. He, you know, his the premise is that after a certain level of training, it's really not. This is my take. After a certain level of training, it's it's not about skills improvement at that point. I mean, I had a hugely successful career in sales, and I don't think my presentation skills are any better than the next person, or you know, the opening calls is any better. But I think it's a change in perspective about what it is you're trying to accomplish. Right, and I think that that we spend too much time focusing on sort of the hard skills and not enough on well, what's the job I'm trying to accomplish here. Right, if my job is to go out and persuade people to buy my product, yeah, I think that's a losing proposition. If my job is to go out and help my buyers make a good purchase decision, not independent of whether they buy me or not, but to make a good purchase decision, I'm going to have a higher fraction of those deals close. I'm going to win a higher percentage of them. And we have these these this issue of of yeah the blind faith in our tech stacks that help us, but you still have to be coming from the right spot. Yeah, I mean that's that's really true, right? That comes down to storytelling and messaging and positioning. It comes down to compelling value narratives and. What I find the biggest thing I see I'm preaching now as I'm reviewing what's actually being written is a lack of specificity because you can personalize to the company, the industry, and similar clients and get some social proof, but it's still not specific enough to not seem to the prospect like, hey, this could have been automated. What I'm trying to do is hyper-personalization. Just like what you did, I want to read one of Andy's articles, pull something out of a book, pull something out of an interview. Once I have two or three of those snippets of like minute 616, and I credit Jeremy Donovan for helping with this definition, you're really in hyper territory. Now the machines can be programmed to pull that level of insight, but to synthesize it into context and mash it up together, that's a uniquely human ability. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's, and that, and that's on both the buying and the selling side of things. And this is, I love the used word synthesize, because I think that is actually a critical skill that is never mentioned in any sort of training or books, it will be in my new book, but is that is that you have to be able to take these disparate sources of information, which means you have to ask the not necessarily the right questions, but you have to ask, I call them great questions, but they're going to change from you know context to context. You have to listen to understand, right, instead of listening to respond, which is how we train sellers today. And then, yeah, synthesize that information into either another question, an insight, something that will provide value to the buyer. And that's not a, that's not a hard skill. I mean, this that's, is this is yeah. I mean, it's a hard <laughs> skill to master, but it's not a hard skill like presentation or you know these other things that we teach in training. So yeah. we have to have a different way of looking at how do we how do we train people? I mean, I think about how did I learn how to do that? Yeah, well, I, mean, I, mean, I, I I like to think 
through complex things. I, I, I you know, was a history major in college, but I mean, I, I didn't love the you know the chronological history, even though I, unfortunately all that stuff stuck in my brain. But it was it was the why, right? I always wanted to know the why behind it. And this is this is where we're show, selling or <laughs> shorting our sellers. Let's say is not enough of this this why. And I think it's a hard thing to say. Yeah, how do we help people acquire those, this ability, this mindset, this perspective to look at it this way? Because because it's it's um, gosh, it's hard to say whether it's scalable or not. Yeah, I like the Simon Sinek, uh, Sinek simplicity of the golden circle and taking mm-hmm. golden circle into messaging, where you really think about the why, the customer's why. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of you know research into asking a why-based question versus a how and the impact that has. If you look at Chris Voss and certain linguistics and negotiation, I'm very into words. But I think becoming a synthesizer and having that analyst skill, which is something like what a Forrester or a Gartner does, um, it requires reading through a lot of stuff, developing your own voice, your own take, and uh, mashups are a great place to start. So um, I think what helped me to get to the synthesis point is needing to write original blogs that weren't just derivations of the other blogs. So I'd take in a few articles, really think about it, and then just start to say my opinion. Like one of my big opinions is that the third appendage, like mobile phones will go away in our lifetime. It'll be like a typewriter. Pretty much all the computing interfaces will be wearable or mm-hmm. heads-up display or floating in the air. I think mm-hmm. in our lifetime that's possible and it's good because the human body ergonomically needs to do more than sit in a chair and hold a piece of polyurethane <laughs> with corning wear glass on it. <laughs> yeah, but I can see that for sure. Yeah, but that's that's from probably reading five or ten books and articles and really thinking about it deeply and, and going over to the Google and, and campus and seeing people wearing the glasses. And I thought it was actually pretty cool. <laughs> right, but is it too much to expect every seller to do something similar? What I've been encouraging sellers to do is, is counter culture in a way is there's a curation time. Everyone curate, but now it's so inexpensive to put out content, whether it's an article or a blog or a podcast. It's very hard to do it at your level. And, and this is a world-class show, which I appreciate. But if sellers can persuade and they can talk in a unique voice, it may not be grammatically perfect or great writing that's going to get a poor mm-hmm. prize. But Funny enough, they've been writing convincing emails for years and they're subject matter right. experts. And if they could turn some of that content into kind of a lead magnet and automate some of it, get it out there, um, it, it would be very cool to just... Well, I think even absent being a lead magnet, I think if they just got it out there. And this, this is why I encourage people, and this for people listening to the show, they've heard this before, is, is you know, we have a... And what I love talking with you is we have a, a shortage of new voices in sales, people 40 and under. <laughs> just, made probably, cut. <laughs> just made the cut. just made the cut. But we'll, we'll yeah, give a little leeway, plus or minus. But, and it's really, really necessary. And, and the way that you express that as you get started, as you've done, is you post a ton of stuff on LinkedIn or wherever you did that was basically about your experiences, things that you think, things that you've, spend some time to think about you know why this works why this is and so on and that's that's the first step and everybody has experiences and i really rebel against this talk on linkedin where there's been people saying you know in the sales community saying yeah should we be harsh on people that say stuff that just seems so obviously wrong and it's like 
No, because what makes <laughs> why do you think it's wrong? Maybe it's right, right? It just doesn't work for your experience necessarily. But we need to encourage more and more people to you know, express themselves about this because fundamentally, and you address this at a higher level, but fundamentally, sales is you know this thin layer of veneer veneer of of technology put on it. Sales hasn't changed in the last hundred years. The way we manage it, the way we measure it. I mean, it's like we need to, it needs to change substantially. Yeah, I felt compelled after um, 20 years in sales in 2021, I just turned 40, to start talking about Congratulations. Things. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, you don't really get like a frequent flyer mile or a prize. <laughs> no, we should. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So I just realized that the stuff I was reading in my LinkedIn feed was compelling and a lot of it was great content marketing and marketing advice. But when it came to actually, Getting some, convincing someone to change their organization and spend you know six figures or seven figures on disruptive software, I was noticing a lot of the things that do work for that are authors that haven't figured out necessarily how to go quite as ballistic as we do in social media. And so I decided, you know, I'm going to go in there and be like Tim the Tool Time Taylor and just show you how to build a cabinet. Well, mm -hmm. Here's how I did a seven-figure deal in 90 days, and here's the tech stack I used, and here's exactly what I said and how I wrote the emails and. It's not really a pedagogy or a school or, you know, some of this stuff is hacked together, but it worked. Sure. And that's kind of fun. It's an interesting voice. It's just like a practitioner voice. I still make cold calls every day myself. <laughs> yeah. Well, and the only thing that I rebel against when I see stuff, some stuff like that, not yours on, on LinkedIn is that the implication is that, yeah, every, everyone's like this, right? I can do this a million times, you know, do my seven figure deal in 90 days. And it's like, don't oversell it. If you did it once, share that experience. That's valuable. I don't care if you've done it ten times or I don't. I first of all, the skeptic in me won't never believes based on my own experience when someone says, "Oh yeah, this is easy and you can do it." You know, replicate it a million times. That's okay. You did it once. That's fantastic, right? How many people actually can close a seven-figure deal in their lifetime? Fine, let's learn from it. Put it out there, and I want more people to do that, right? Even if it's just one-off, that's fine. Yeah. I mean, the thing for me is I wanted to almost say how hard it was. I remember Kevin J. O'Connor, who founded DoubleClick. I got to meet with him in my mm -hmm. mid-20s and I read his book and he always joked like it didn't sell a ton of copies because he talked about how hard it was to like fund the company in his parents' basement, <laughs> run up money on credit cards and almost right, go out of business right. tons of time right. and regulation. And it's incredible. And then he always jokes, cause I, I don't know, it was some ungodly figure he sold for it's hundreds of millions. And the day after Google flipped it to somebody flipped it to a private equity for 1.2 billion. And he just jokes, I lost 500 million on that deal, right? He's a great guy. He's really funny. His book's amazing. It's called the map of innovation and it has a mm -hmm. mousetrap on it, which is the folly of Silicon Valley. We want to make the bigger, better mousetrap. Let's just pour the VC money in, and we're not always solving the right problem. Um, <laughs> well, no, we're oftentimes a solution in search of a problem, but yes. So as a, as, a, as a futurist and someone that just scores that way psychologically, and some of the CEOs I've talked to, and even talking with uh, Mary Lou Tyler, to her mm -hmm. great credit, I asked, you know, where should all these tool companies be building? What are your favorite features? What are your favorite things they can do? And she's like... <laughs> They got to do something totally different. There's, they got to get out of the white space, right? She wants like a follow-up engine. She shared on my show. I, I mean, it's like, can we think differently? Because at this point, we have another industrial complex of same, same, same tech. It's like when everyone was making a photo sharing app or a social network, we're like, there's 200 social networks. Can someone, you know, cure COVID? Have, well, <laughs> let's work on that one. You know, it's like, uh, it's a, a, too soon, but. <laughs> yeah, but I think 
to, to follow up on your point, though, is, is the technology has shaped how we perceive. And Mary Lou's point is is right on. Is that so? Um, I think it was you know, Steve Norman and New Zealand sent me this, or Australia. Excuse me, I keep saying New Zealand. Australia uh, had sent me this this. Uh, or maybe I had that backwards. Oh, whatever. Anyway, uh, this diagram, and it, it showed three circles on it. And the one left, let's say, is the size of a basketball. The one in the middle is the size of a tennis ball. And the one on the right was the size of a basketball. And he said, you know, this is the way people perceive sort of the necessary allocation of resources and sales. And the first basketball on the left is top of the funnel. The tennis ball was selling <laughs> and the second basketball was closing and you know it's just completely out of whack first of all closing is an outcome it's not a process you know we spend a disproportionate amount of time on top of funnel and very little comparatively on the middle where the selling where that actually takes place you know when you look at scan linkedin and look at the comparative amounts of stuff written about Top of funnel versus discovery and qualification and and so on, which are the meat of where the rubber meets the road, where you actually win the deals. And yeah. and we need to change that. And I tell people, yeah, we'll know we're on the right track when instead of salespeople saying, "Well, I'm signed up to go to outbound this year," I've signed up to go to inbound this year. They've signed up to go to discovery and qualification this year. Right? Where's our Where's our conference on qualification? Where's our conference on discovery? Those are the things people need to get better at. What's really interesting, I was talking to the CMO of Science, Eric Quanstrom. He was talking about how marketing had figured he's a, out. He's a friend. He's awesome, right? So he marketing had figured out specialization quite a long time ago. You don't have your SEO person and your graphic designer working on your UX, and they're not necessarily buying your media or doing your branding. So they get mm-hmm. it. Now, mm-hmm. the sales structure is being revolutionized by specialization. And so having these conferences is more of a mission statement or political statement about, in many ways, that people have become too obsessed on inbound because the beauty of the automated tools is you kind of can make money when you sleep because you can send so many emails. And when I sent a million emails, it was for 100 customers. So I was only doing about 1,000 contacts a month, which is pretty humane, (laughs) relatively. But you could buy one of these things, send 30,000 emails, and just pick up the low-hanging fruit. And you're not really selling your order-taking, but if you have enough TAM, total addressable market. (laughs) That's the way so many of these companies are doing it, though. People warned me about my book. They said, look, it's you got to put a a caution. So I actually have a creed in the front of like, you're going to read this book to learn about these uh, weapons of mass communication. And the goal here is to send it in smaller batches more thoughtfully and to take your time and make it quality. It's just like you can drive your car 200 miles an hour, but it's, it's no longer safe and uh, might be fun, but you're going to get it. Uh, you're going to get well, it bigger than a ticket. <laughs> and that, that is the lesson though, of uh, that we haven't learned about the way we're using technology and sales is just because you can do something like drive 200 miles an hour doesn't mean that you should. And But there's not enough questioning going on about, well, how should this change? Because yeah. everybody's so short-term oriented is all I want to do is I'm going to yeah, goose this thing and try to get an exit or some sort of outcome from it. And we're going to see, as we already do, I mean, you look at you know, 60% of venture-funded companies at a minimum fail, right? I mean, you talk to investors, they say, I have 10 investments, six fail, 
two are middling successes and two are okay. So this is happening. Same thing's playing out in the SaaS. It's not the predictable revenue model, the way we structure selling is not the savior. It's not the reason these companies succeed. Yeah, I mean, I think I just so like respect how Aaron has developed the work for the, the new generations. But I do believe that just looking at a sales organization and structuring it as SDRs, AEs, CSMs, here's the forecast, here's the benchmark, here's how we're going to do it. Everyone's agreeing on this model, even the commission structure. structure. Now, we, what we can't change is a P&L. Obviously, if you're not making margin, you're not profiting, you know, you don't have the good fundamentals of the business. We can't change the free market economic system, but some people are doing cryptocurrency and, you know, distributed general ledgers and smart Ricardian contracts and doing things with blockchain that are really wild and phenomenal because of the transparency levels. But I think for now, what's an actionable takeaway? But they don't, but they don't sell. That's just part of the process. That's not influencing a customer to buy from you. Yeah. That's true. I mean, that's that's the thing. We get we get hung up on the, you know, the, the drapings, and we're missing some of the fundamental points, which is we fundamentally have a ton of companies that are employing a certain inside sales model that's predicated on a land of plenty at the top of the funnel and poor execution at the bottom. But we put enough into the top of the funnel, we get away with it. Yeah, it's a a low-hanging fruit sausage grinder in a way if I'm going to mix metaphors. I think what the new technology can allow us to do is point the artificial intelligence and machine learning at another problem. And that's the issue of how much selling time is being spent. So if you have a serious person who's trying to optimize for contact rates or the amount of replies or the amount of discovery calls that they can do, I think that's where this tech could be phenomenal. Because ultimately what I'd like to do is show up to work do less than 20% of filing and admin and the rest taken care of by robots. And I would like to be on the phone, like talking with you, being provoked, having insight, like being challenged, growing, learning, hearing your stories, your references. I gain from this. I don't gain from your templated emails. (laughs) Yeah. Well, but here's the thing. And you, and you wrote about that is, you know, you mentioned that, uh, you know, reps only spending 31% of their time selling, but here's, here's the problem with that. It's always been the case. I mean, I started selling 40 plus years ago. We only spent a third of our time. The stat was the same. Interesting. That hasn't changed. So, and it's not going to change, right? You should never design a system assuming that is that number is going to change. And so, as I tell people, the challenge is how do we make people more productive with the time they spend selling? So, how can I get you to go from $100 of revenue that you generate for every hour you spend selling, actual selling, to $200? That's productivity increase. How do I get you to generate more revenue per selling hour? And that's that should be the metric that we spend focused on. Everything else, like quota and so on, is just for me is immaterial. Yeah. So I think the way that you would apply technology to that are things like um, you know ring DNA and conversation intelligence. Because I was actually talking to someone, and she found that her she was saying the exact same thing as another rep to try to handle an objection, like a common rebuttal. Mm-hmm. And they tested tone changes, and it actually was the script. It was psychologically what was said that won. But because they had it recorded and they were remote and they could go back and look at the exact same script and moment in the sale, that became a process. Handling that one objection in a certain way was a streak, and it worked. It would convert more customers, is a A-B test. And so that became then adopted by that team. And now you're using technology as the lever 
during the time that you're selling, making the selling more yes. effective. So I think I'm, I think I'm learning from you. I'm synthesizing and playing it back. <laughs> <laughs> but that is, that is the goal, right? I, we need to, we need to, you know, Edward Deming, who, you know, the quality control expert has the <laughs> saying, you know, every system is perfectly designed to get the to get the results it gets. Yeah. Okay. And that's absolutely true. So let's change the system. Let's, let's change how we look at productivity. If some, if a rep makes 60 calls a day and they make 65 the next day, are they more productive the next day? I would argue, hmm, depends. How many of those calls actually end up resulting in an order? And yeah. we should only count calls as productive that end up in an outcome. And then we say, okay, well, if that's the case, then we need to change how we look at how we make the calls, how we message, all the things that you're talking about then come into play to say, how do we completely transform what we're doing to say, okay, the fraction of calls that they make that actually result in an outcome down the line go up. Yeah, and my, that should be our goal. My work is about superhuman scaling, but just like garbage in, garbage out. If you don't first focus, it's so Mr. Miyagi, like painting the fence, like on your blocking and tackling. And if you don't practice that same one kick 10,000 times, then you have 10,000 variations of a bad kick. And so the fundamentals, like really the exercise is get rid of all the tech stacks, get people into a room drilling and practicing live fire. I was talking with Kevin Dorsey. He's like, I can do more in an hour one-on-one -on -one with someone just going back and forth. Okay, start. Hey, it's Kevin. And then boom, they're flat-footed. Or um, Okay, try again. And drilling through live fire, then they would maybe observing that or listening to a course or a video. So that, that old practitioner apprentice mode of like, you know, AI could do flight simulation, just kind of like DARPA, they're flying jets now. Mm. <laughs> Mike Sher was working on this problem, actually, a flight simulator for reps sure. where you, you talk to a computer or you talk to some recordings but like a chess game, you turn it up to a harder mode, it starts to really stump you and, and argue with you. <laughs> I, you know, that could be helpful. Right. But here, I think, is one of the, one of the crossroads where we're at. And unfortunately, we'll have to come back and talk about because we've come out of run of time is that sales is an apprenticeship. Yeah. This is how, this is how people learn. It's a trade and, and Yes. And so, Took until we understand how to train, that's right, <laughs> reinstitute the guilds. Middle Ages, here we come. But yeah, until we learn how to to really scale that, um, we've got problems. So anyway, Justin, it's been fantastic. Unfortunately, we got to run, but uh, tell people how they can connect with you. Just look for Justin Michael on LinkedIn, and my book will be Tech Powered Sales, co-author is Tony J. Hughes, and uh, I'm a huge we'll Andy Parkman. Thank you. And yeah, we'll have you back on when, when that book comes out next year. And Justin, in the meantime, take care. Thanks, Andy. Great show. Honored to be on. Well, thank you. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. I am ever so grateful for your support of this show. And I want to thank my guest, Justin Michael, for sharing his vision with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you could also leave us a rating or review and let us know how we're doing, well, we'd certainly appreciate that. And you can do that all on your phone in less than a minute as soon as this podcast is over. So thanks for your help with that. And thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. <laughs>